So I'm constantly going, no, 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 stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth. And I'm like, guys, you have to know what the f*** you have. Alright, you want to uh, light this candle? Let's get the tires and light the fires. Alrighty. Here we go. Today is Sunday, February 1st, 2015, and this is episode 104 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Mr. Bell. How are you, sir? I am great. It's a monumentous day. The puppy bowl is on. And, and the kitten bowl. That's true. Second annual kitten bowl. That was true. And, uh, it was quite entertaining to Caesar the Security Cat. He was watching it quite intently. <laughs> cool. So um, before we uh, before we get started, uh, we did agree, and, and by the way, we're not taking any compensation for this. We're doing this as a public service. Uh, the uh, the B sides Las Vegas crew asked us to to play a bit of a spot for them. So. Uh, I'll uh, I'll cut to that right now, and then we will come right back and start our stories. The 7th Annual B-Sides Las Vegas is being held August 4th and 5th at the Tuscany Suites and Casino. B-Sides Las Vegas is where the next big thing happens first, right between the two big security conferences. Do you have an idea for a talk that would be perfect for B-Sides Las Vegas? Are you afraid maybe you don't have enough speaker or con experience to actually be able to do it? Hi, I'm Totenkopf. And I'm Moe. We're coordinating a program called Proving Ground for B-Size Las Vegas. Proving Ground is designed to create a space for the best new speakers and the hottest talks to be heard. These new presenters are paired with more experienced mentors to help shape their talks and build skills and confidence before the big day. Exactly. We want to make sure all our speakers hit the jackpot. I cannot believe you just said that. Dude, we talked about this. Sorry. The Proving Ground CFP opens February 9th and runs through April 15th. All the details can be found at bsideslv.org. You'll want to get your submission in as soon as possible because slots go fast. Really? Do I need to get Banshee in here? Our call for mentors also opens on February 9th and General CFP opens in March. So check out the details on Proving Grounds at bsideslv.org. We hope to see you in Las Vegas. All right, so jumping into our stories, the first thing we have tonight comes hey, from... Well, while we're oh, on the B-Sides topic. Yeah, yeah, uh, go ahead. Uh, there is rumor, and take this as rumor, that B-Sides Atlanta is coming back. Uh, we're told, take this with a grain of salt, March 14th or 13th. March March 14th. March 14th, which is a Saturday. Right. But uh, we have not gotten full confirmation on location. But either way, uh, I plan to be there if it does indeed happen, since I'm in the Atlanta area. Absolutely. So, as will uh, I. That might be a defensive security podcast sighting, as it were. And and in exciting news, because Jerry was apparently bored, uh, we now have swag you can buy. That's right. And And if you bring it... To B sides Atlanta, I'll smile at you. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> that's that's quite a quite a deal right there. Well, I'm not, it's not like it's not like somebody wants my signature. Come on, man. Fair enough. <laughs> we are currently uh, X list celebrities, so fair point. We haven't even made it to up to to D list. We've got like twenty one letters to go. Fair point. <laughs> so anyway, all right. If you're so, done interrupting me, no, not at all. But carry on, and I'll uh, I'll right. be sure to. Hey, you know, I, if I've got to carry the logistics load of this show, I'll do it. <laughs> right. so, I know you're anxious to get to the Puppy Bowl. So so our first story tonight comes from SC Magazine. And the title is Insurer Sues Web Designer in Bank Breach. Uh, th- obviously, this is a fascinating story to me. Yeah, it is pretty pretty interesting. Uh, also interesting is that all of our opinions are not representative of our employers. Oh, since Jerry forgot to say that good, too. Good point. Good point. And I'm keeping us from getting fired. Uh, oh, well, you're trying to. Man, where would you be without me? I swear. Anyway, back to insurance, suing web designer. Yes. Thank yes. Thank you. So yeah. Traver- Travelers is uh, suing a web design company. Uh, apparently, this web design company who built a, uh, I guess, built built and maintained a site. The name of that company is Ignition Studio uh, on behalf of Alpine Bank. Uh, experienced a breach. So the bank experienced a breach and uh, the Alpine Bank filed a claim for $155,000 under their cyber insurance policy. And now Travelers is coming back after Ignition Studio claiming that they were effectively negligent in their responsibilities. And they, they're claiming that uh, they performed substandard maintenance. Uh, they uh, did not install critical patches or maintain uh, adequate encryption, among other deficits. So, you know, obviously right now this is just uh, the, the beginning of a lawsuit. But I have to tell you, I really think that if this... You know, this thing follows through, and they, the, the insurance company ends up succeeding in its suit. That really could be quite a uh, a monumental change in the IT uh, industry. I mean, right now, it's uh, you know, it's kind of every man for himself, and it's uh, it's very fast and loose. I think in terms of web design, and all of a sudden now, if if there's you know, going to be some liability, that's, that's I think, going to be a game changer. Which I would wonder if this goes back to what sort of contract was signed with the web designer. Well, you know, it's, it, that's also an interesting point because there's no, there's no really contractual relationship between the, um, the, the, the insurance company and the, uh, uh, the web design company. Yeah. But I'm sure that whatever I'm hoping that whatever community the community bank signed with the web designer basically said the web designer is immune from any and all you know financial liability for any sort of issue with the website uh you know from a security standpoint to some extent you know there's always that boilerplate in there of uh, you know <laughs> as is you know use with your own risk we're not responsible blah 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 so it'll be interesting and I'm sure that they had, I mean, I, I guess I don't know for sure, right? But I would bet there is some kind of language. But 
you know, whether or not that will indemnify them, I, I don't know. R- remains to be seen. I'm really interested to see how this turns out. I'm also curious what if if this will lead to some sort of, <laughs> and this is such a slippery slope, uh, you know, some sort of precedence around what is not negligence and what is not substandard maintenance of a website. Right? Is the court going to define minimum standards? Mm, that that will be <laughs> be very interesting. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm not just because the court system works so slowly relative to the speed of technology that I, I'm not sure how how well that's going to work for folks. But this will be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, my, I have to say, I'm going to go out on a limb and bet that the um, the web design company isn't going to have the the wherewithal to to really dig into that you know, into that depth of a defense, you know, and, and try to try to uh, uh, get the court to decide or, or define what what amounts to adequate due care here. But you know, we'll see. I I I don't really know how this is going to go, but it's uh, it's certainly one to watch. Yeah, and I think. You know, the takeaway for me is no matter who's designing and running your website, you still, as the company who commissioned it, should care about the security of it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, But, you know, I I guess the other other part is that this says to me, you know, cybersecurity insurance is becoming a big industry. You know, it's becoming a mandatory requirement in a lot of vendor contracts uh, a lot of companies are, are just feeling for obvious reasons that they need to have it. And, you know, we're, we're seeing lots of companies be breached in this, you know, I, I think that whereas before a company would, uh, you know, kind of be breached, lick its wounds and move on. Now that risk is being transferred to an insurance company who, you know, whose job is based around minimizing its loss. And, and so they're, they're going to be, Far more interested in, uh, you know, in, in pursuing cases like this. So, interesting, indeed. All right, moving on to another really interesting story. This one comes from High Tech Bridge, and the title is "Ransom Web: Emerging Website Threat That May Outshine DDoS, Data Theft, and Defacements." So, little clinkbaity at the beginning there, but it is an interesting story. Yes. Yes. So um, the the deal here is that a uh, a company, apparently it was a financial services company, um, had their website breached, and over the course of about six months, or I should say, in the in the beginning of the breach, the attacker modified the applications that the that ran the website, and basically they encrypted. Uh, some parts of the data or some fields in the database. And at the same time, they added some code that transparently encrypts and decrypts on the fly. And they made a call out to an external website to retrieve the key. Uh, and this all happened unbeknownst to the financial services company. So basically... the Oddly enough, making the website more PCI compliant in the process. <laughs> That's a great point. That's a great point. So, um, so the problem is that you know six months go by, and the attacker revokes the key from the external website, 
obviously this financial services company's website stops working and then uh, and then the attacker sends a ransom email to uh, the victim saying you know hey pay us some money and we'll give you the key and you can go back on your way here's the problem the data you know you can't restore from a backup or or reasonably restore from a backup because it's been encrypted for the past six months uh, and you know, I, I I thought about this. This is, I think, a very clever way of maximizing the likelihood and and really profit of the the you know the crypto locker type attacks, um, because they're basically painting you the victim into a corner that you can't get out of. If you want to, you know, if you want your data back, you're going to have to to pay up. Um, and then apparently they actually go in, go on and talk about another customer that the same, essentially the same thing happened to, uh, was a, a I guess a, probably a little less sophisticated application in the PHP P, PHPBB forum, which is, you know, not not the most stellarly secure piece of software ever, but um, same kind of deal, right? They they encrypted it, uh, broke in, they encrypted the data, and then. Uh, then locked the form sometime later, and uh, and demanded a ransom. So, you know, again, this is a case where backups, the the, the kind of the traditional fallback for this kind of attack, doesn't help a ton. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and I'm wondering, what would you do? I mean, I guess if you were verifying the data somehow. While doing the backup, I guess it all depends on where that backup stream is coming in, because they had that on-the-fly decryption for when it was being called from the website, so the website would work. I would guess that their backup system was actually at the table level on the database server, right. so it wouldn't be touching that script in any way. Right. And then I'm wondering, you know, what? Uh, unless you just maintain another set of that system somehow synced offline uh, that is actually the system of record. You know, whatever whatever that is, whatever that data is, let's say it's uh, like a, some sort of product data. You know, maybe you had a more protected version of that deep inside and the website database is just a mirror of your production main system of record. I don't know, man. That's a tough one. Uh, I'm wondering if you could somehow detect that those records are being modified in some way. I wonder if something like uh, like an Imperva uh, database monitor or something along those lines could be watching for that sort of thing. Uh, it'd be interesting to know specifically what sort of technical tools would spot that. Uh, they even talk about how they only encrypted just specific things to not af- affect performance too much, which is pretty, pretty clever. Uh, it's a smart attack. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the attackers are clearly... They're clearly upping their game, trying to maximize the likelihood of a payout, right? So, so they're looking for right. for creative ways to do that. Now, the the article here does make some recommendations. You know, one I had a I had a discussion with uh, with someone on Twitter about this. You know, they they mentioned well, you, you, this points out that you need to go verify your backups. Well, the problem is that I would assert that in almost any normal backup verification process these backups probably looked okay uh they you know that the files can be restored just fine there's uh 
you know, they, they look okay. The, the integrity is there. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm not sure that that, that would actually work. Um, but they do offer a couple of ideas. Number one is to, uh, to, to use file integrity monitoring on the applications. So the, you know, the, the application code. Um, so you're catching the actual exploitation attempt. Correct. And, you know, if yeah. you think about it logically, if you can detect that, if you can detect the intrusion and the encryption of the data early enough on, then you, you have an opportunity you know, not to lose any data. If you did have to restore from backups, you know, it's only maybe a day or, or even right. a week, not six months. So, uh, so that was, you know, that's one, uh, they say that it's, um, uh, let's see, I guess the only other one that they offer another suggestion, which I don't think makes much sense, but uh, the last one was to, uh, to periodically update your web application software, because if you, you know, if you're continually updating that software, you're going to, you're going to catch it presumably if, uh, if some kind of alteration like this is being made. Um, some other, some other thoughts I had on this, um, other than the file integrity monitoring, which I think is a, is a pretty good option is, you know, to, to, uh, to do some kind of periodic, uh, periodic check on the data in your database, you know, whether that's just a little health check script that runs periodically and, and checks to see if, the data is what what you think it's going to be, and that that kind of presumes that you're concerned about this type of attack. So far, there's two known instances, but I got to imagine you know, this is pretty darn effective. It's news is going to get out, and uh, and we know it's it's pretty easy to break into to websites. So wouldn't be surprising to hear that this is uh, common. The other the other idea is to not allow your web server to talk out to the internet, you know, to initiate connections out to the internet. Because if that, if that happened, or if you did that and somebody encrypted your data and made a, you know, made this code change that made a call out to an external site, it just wouldn't work. And you'd know pretty much right away that something was going on. So. I was also thinking, you know, if you had good DR, maybe your backup website would be unaffected. True. That's a good point. Depending on how you're syncing, right? If you're syncing database to database, you might be syncing over that encryption, which would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really does so, come down to how you're, how you're replicating, right? Yeah. Oi. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think your best defense is spotting the actual exploitation and uh, modification of the initial code. And by the way, my, my, recommended solution would be the, the thing I said last, you know, not allowing outbound traffic to the, to the general internet. May, you know, maybe that's not entirely possible because you need to get updates or whatever, but you can, you can dramatically limit what you need to talk to. Yeah, certainly. Uh, outbound egress filtering is a very often overlooked yet easily effective technique. Yes. All right. So moving on. Our next story is uh, it's a blog post on Gartner's site from Anton Chuvakin, and uh, I thought this was pretty interesting. It's you know it's not hard hitting news or anything like that, but uh, it, essentially he he points out that 
again, we are very, as an industry, we're very enamored with defending against APTs and advanced attacks and advanced malware. And at the same time, we're not doing a very good job at blocking opportunistic attacks. And so maybe we ought to focus on getting good at blocking those opportunistic attacks before we start worrying about the more advanced ones. I think that's pretty reasonable. Because I think if you get the basics right, you're also going to stop a lot of the, in theory, more advanced stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Or at least make it that much harder. Absolutely. So I don't want to dwell on that. It's It's a good read. I recommend reading it. Um, and, and also, you know, consider that for your own, your own shop. Are you, are you too enamored with the advanced thing and not enough with the opportunistic problems? So, and I, I think most people probably realize whether or not that's the case for their, uh, for their shop. If you're, you know, if you're getting crypt, crypto lacquered all the time and you're worried about China, you know, maybe your focus is, is misplaced. So um, moving on to our next story, which comes from CSO, and the title is Seven Ideas for Security Leaders, and it's not actually seven, so uh, whatever. Uh, the first uh, first idea, from which comes from Jack Jones, is to adopt root cause analysis, and uh, basically the, the point here is that when you have a, a security incident or an audit finding, it really behooves you to do a thorough root cause analysis and then go address the root cause. Not necessarily, not the symptoms, but the actual root cause. What what led to that, uh, you know, to the conditions that allowed that thing to, to happen. And they actually offer a, a link to, and, and, you know, granted it's a vendor, it's, it's from a vendor, but I thought it was really pretty cool. It's free. It's just a little uh, flowchart that helps you do uh, RCAs, which I thought was quite nice. So um, so his recommend, recommended five steps for RCAs is, number one, identify outstanding risk issues. Number two, perform the RCA on risk issues, and again, using the file that's linked. Number three, identify one or two root causes responsible for the majority of issues. Number four, treat those root causes. And number five, make RCA a requirement for all audit and information security risk identification processes. And I think that is a very good piece of advice in my mind. RCA, though, is really labor-intensive. I agree. So uh, I would say there's times when you do it and times when you don't, depending on... or, Or you get more aggressive about it, depending on that. Uh, I do think it's valuable. Uh, certainly, if you've got boxes that are being popped and you know, you're getting an anti-malware pop-up on it, you want to know where that's coming from so you could shore up that potential exploitation vector uh, or that you know, area of, of the environment. But uh, you know, it's like reverse engineering malware. You're not going to do it every time, I don't think. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you, you do have to... Uh... You do have to measure, be measured in your your use of resources for sure. Uh, but you know, at the same time, I think it's useful to get to the point of understanding that you know we're we're having all these malware problems, and they're all uh, they're all a result of uh, people clicking on emails or things like that, which would allow you to make some kind of a more strategic improvement. 
right? Rather than, you know, shaking your fist at the sky because Symantec didn't catch something. Uh, so anyhow, it's, um, I think the situation is going to be different for every, uh, every organization. So uh, the next uh, item they had was from Ron Wilson, who is the VP of Customer Success at Dombala. And that is to tactically prepare for the assume breach mindset. And again, in the, in the apparent spirit, there are five steps here. Number one is to figure out who internally needs to be informed and in what priority define and document who owns internal and external communication create number two, create and define the communication team. These are the folks with the skill and ability to communicate effectively during a crisis. They need the ability. They need to be able to rapidly translate complex uh, complexity to coordinate various groups. Uh, Number three, identify who needs to internally help assess and remediate. Make sure they know. Number four, determine who you can turn to externally for additional support work to get agreements in place before a breach happens. And number five, predefine the local state and federal agencies to work with. So, so again, the idea here is, I think this is a little different than what I've normally thought of when, you know, we take on the assume breach discussion, but basically making sure that you have a solid incident response process in place, which I think is what this is saying. It's not necessarily the, assume breach mindset that it uh, claims to be. Yeah, I, I agree with all this. I think it's pretty good. Yep. Um, no, nothing I could really criticize or add to there. I think it's pretty, pretty straightforward. We've often uh, said on the show, plan ahead of time for a breach and exercise that plan. You're going to be far better off than trying to make it up as you go. Absolutely. Uh, the next one I thought was was pretty good comes from Jonathan Sander, who is the strategy and research officer with StealthBits. And his, uh, his item is to get comfortable talking about unstructured data. And the point here is that he doesn't have five bullets, so I don't know how you... I don't know what to do with this, but uh, in any event, uh, he points out that we often worry about things like databases and, uh, and those databases being breached, but the reality is just about all of your organization's data exists in unstructured data, you know, spreadsheets, Word docs, uh, stuff like that. And we're not often thinking about those. We're not thinking about protecting those to the same extent we do about our databases. So essentially just uh, start thinking, make sure those, uh, those repositories of unstructured data are on your roadmap. That's a tough problem right there. (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> you know, uh, clearly there's plenty of, not plenty, but some vendors out there who are working on that problem. Uh, and But it is a tough, tough problem. And that's one that really speaks to how your employees work. And trying to wrap technical controls and InfoSec around this sort of stuff is really difficult. And, and you're probably going to get a ton of pushback. If you say to your employees, hey, you can't do work with sensitive data and spreadsheets. You've got to use this online database. They're probably not going to listen to you. And it's one of those that we as humans are just really sort of built to use these sort of very fundamental low-level tools to work with data. And it drives 
the IT security team crazy trying to manage and cope with that critical data being in these unstructured formats. And it's one I don't think we talk about much, but I think it's one that is a constant problem. It's, it leads to things like, you know, things being sent home to your home email to be worked on, and then suddenly you've got an accidental breach of, of critical data, or things being sent out to Dropbox, or all this sort of stuff that people are just trying to do their job. And so they grab it, and they throw it in a Word doc, or a, a spreadsheet, or whatever it is, and chew on it, and do what they're trying to do, and before you know it, you've got really sensitive data that's no longer under control of the organization. Absolutely. And not, not for malicious reasons either. It's just the way people work. Right. And this is such a great intersection as an example of where IT security controls and the way people work really fight each other. Yep, yeah, in- indeed. So the next item comes from uh, Sean Tuma, and the title is Assess contracts and policies that govern use and uh, wow this one is nothing but excitement (laughs) let me tell you sexy i'll sum it up and you know um sean is a sean is a very interesting guy i think he's a he's a lawyer and um you know talks a lot about and writes a lot about information security topics but you know, I'll sum it up and say, you know, you want to make sure that you have your contracts and your policies in a defensible position in case you have to go to court, right? You you, you want to make sure you want to be able to demonstrate that you've done uh, adequate due diligence. Uh, your employees know what their responsibilities are uh, under their employment contracts and under your policy, your corporate policies. You want to you want to make sure that. Your vendors understand what their responsibilities are, that their responsibilities are clearly laid out in, uh, in, in the contracts with them, and, and so on. And then if something does happen, it, it, that helps you out in, in uh, the inevitable uh, court day. So, um, And then uh, next one is from J-Rox. I think that's how you say his name. Uh, who is the senior director of product management for Rapid7. And he's, his uh, point is to understand your users. So, you know, looking at your administrators and, you know, uh, doing things like phishing, you know, phishing exercises, uh, looking for the, the shadow IT in the cloud kind of, uh, kind of situations. So nothing, again, in, kind of basic block and tackling stuff. So the the rest of the items here are kind of what I'll call touchy-feely and it will move on from. And then uh, the last story we have comes from Errata Security, right? And this, so, oh, I go mean, ahead. really, we've, we've not, you probably everybody's wondering why we haven't touched on it. This was like the big story of the week, but it seems so long ago now. Yes. <laughs> so long ago. Uh, and it, you know, somewhat was much ado about nothing, even though it got its own logo. And name. And name. But yeah. not yet its own bumper music. Well, y- y- yes, that's right. We need to, we need these vulnerability disclosures to up their game and not only come with a name and a logo, but also some theme music. Of course, we're talking about Ghost. Absolutely talking about Ghost. So... I am so tired of name vulnerabilities. And, you know, it's, um, I guess, what, the 
third or fourth week in January when this came out. Doesn't doesn't portend for a good year to come, I guess. But uh, I I fear you're going to be sadly disappointed because this is the wave of the PR future, my friend. I know, I know. So uh, so hope, hopefully most people are aware of Ghost, but for those that aren't, Ghost is a vulnerability in a function in glibc, which is very pervasive across uh, primarily Linux systems. And you know what's the frustrating thing is that not only has the function that is problematic here been deprecated a long time ago, and you should have been using some new sets of functions that aren't vulnerable, this problem was actually patched two years ago. But it wasn't called a security patch for a couple of reasons, and therefore the uh, most of the distribution, Linux distributions, did not merge that patch into their... Uh, into their distribution, and so we have this problem. Uh, and, you know, again, I've written about this, and we've talked about it in the past. There's a there's a problem of incentives with security research companies and vulnerability disclosures, because, you know, they want to make a splash. They want to, you know, to, to get their five minutes of fame, and so... You know, they're going to give it a name, make it seem very critical, uh, and you know, I guess give it a logo too. Uh, so, so what happened here was Qualys found this found this problem. They wrote up a pretty extensive uh, email and sent it to full disclosure, and then they kind of took it on took it on the the PR roadshow and included some. Uh, some proof of concept code, not not full exploitation code, but some proof of concept code that would would be able to tell if your system is vulnerable. And you know, most people running Linux systems were in fact vulnerable. And uh, and also they they demonstrated a proof of concept against uh, Exim, the mail server Exim, which provided remote code execution. And they were. You know, very explicit in pointing out that it bypassed uh, ASLR, which you know, how could that possibly be? And uh, what's what's good about this article from Rob Graham is he is bringing some sanity to the discussion, as he often does, by the way. Yeah, in yeah. his own unique way. Yeah, sometimes sometimes he makes me mad. Most of the time, I'm with him. <laughs> but uh you know so so he makes a couple of good points in here that you know first off that mo- most things aren't vulnerable um even if your system has the a vulnerable version of glibc if you're not using software that that uses the get adder info function uh actually get adder info is the replacement it's the get host by name that's vulnerable but most you know most software should be using the get adder info which is not vulnerable so uh, the, the get host by name function is kept for backward compatibility. Uh, so, so again, most things aren't vulnerable. Uh, his next point was most vulnerable things aren't exploitable. And we see this quite a, quite a lot too. Uh, I remember this was a, a big deal with, um, with Shellshock. You know, it's, there's a big difference between being vulnerable and being exploitable. You know, on that point, I do want to jump in real quick here. Sure. One thing that's interesting about this is uh, be careful how you're assessing your environment. 
if you're using some sort of uh, you know scanner, vulnerability scanner, to properly detect for this, you actually need to have authenticated scans, and the scanner needs to know how to run um, a scan actually logged into the box. Most of the external unauthenticated scans are not reliable in detecting if this if your host is uh, vulnerable to this. So you just couldn't wait to get down to that bullet point, couldn't you? Sorry, I, I forgot that was in there. I'm sorry. I just I, I felt it's coming like out of your pay. I, it's coming out of your pay. You know, there's I just I just I was I was lonely. <laughs> I was sitting over here just lonely. So um most exploits are local only. Uh he points out that in order to exploit it you need to to send the vulnerable piece of code a domain that contains thousand a thousand zeros. Quite literally a thousand zeros. And uh XM is one of the appears to be one of the few things that you can easily do remotely, right? Because you can you can send it uh, uh, in the SMTP handshake command. You know, you can send it your host name with a thousand zeros, and if you have the right uh, anti-spam functions turned on in XM, which by the way are not default settings, it'll uh, it'll call that get host by name function, and you'll end up conceivably with uh, you know with a remote code execution. Uh, is this another Heartbleed? You know, he points out that even Heartbleed wasn't Heartbleed. The problem is that these things are, you know, very pervasive. Um, uh, should I panic? No. Um, and here's another good one that I think a lot of people lose sight of uh, on all of the ones that we've seen before, Heartbleed, Shellshock, and, and now Ghost. And that is the difference between dynamic and statically linked libraries. It's a very important distinction in uh, in Linux systems. It's not quite so common in Windows systems, but you know it can be a problem. But basically, glibc, uh, if your program is dynamically linked, you you upgrade glibc to a, a, a patched version, and you you restart the services, reboot your system, and you're good. But if you have statically linked binaries, which used to be a really common thing to do back in the day for performance reasons, um, you know, you you have the vulnerable library actually baked into that you know a particular executable. And, and then, as you as you pointed out, there's no easy way to scan for it. Yeah, sorry, forgot that was in there. Uh, you probably have to reboot. Uh, you can run a quick script to check for your vulnerability. They did, again, he points out that Qualys did provide a, uh, a, a little C program in their advisory that you could, you could run. Uh, it's a vulnerability of things. You know, this is, uh, something we're going to see on embedded devices because Linux is becoming very pervasive on, on embedded devices. The bug doesn't bypass ASLR or the NX setting. Uh, he points out that though Qualys points out that they could get remote code execution through Exim, it was because of a problem in Exim, not because of, of a particular issue with you know the, the ghost vulnerability. Uh, and then he, he gets a couple of uh, links for further reading. So anyway, it it, it is intensely frustrating to me when these kinds of things happen because it 
takes, in my view at least, it takes often takes sanity away from the prioritization of vulnerabilities and vulnerability remediation and, and puts it on to, you know, what's the, what's the hot topic. And, you know, clearly these things are meant to be on CNN, right? That's why they have a name and a logo. They want everybody and their dog to be talking about it. Unfortunately, when your CEO is watching that, that becomes the thing they latch onto. And if you are patching that, you're not patching your remote code execution problem in Windows or, you know, your flash problem, which is what's going to get you. So, yep. You know, and once again, this is something that's easy to talk about but difficult to build. We really have to do a better job of managing these when they come in the door. This is going to keep happening. We're going to keep getting these big, broad exploit possible vulnerabilities are going to show up. We had three or four last year. We're probably going to have a number of them this year. We've, you know, what I think makes sense is having a, a very skilled, clueful group that sort of takes a look at these and figures out how critical this is for your organization and reacts appropriately, not based on the press, not based on, you know, what CNN is saying, but based on the reality of the vulnerability on the ground and what it really means Absolutely. and in your environment and then set appropriate criticality. Um, and, and this, this doesn't need to be a fire drill every time, right? This is a continuous process. This is going to keep happening as well as every other product in our environment that's going to keep having patches. So we've got to find a way to not make this a fire drill every single time. Completely agree. So that is our uh, that is our Super Bowl Sunday episode. Are we allowed to say that? I don't think we're allowed to say that. Uh, you know, there was a big there was a big hoopla going around about you know the NFL wants you to think you're not allowed to say it. Mm. I got to tell you, just on a personal note, I do find that just silly. It would be you know all these people saying using the term the big game right in any sort of advertising or commercial uh, communication. How in any way is saying the Super Bowl hurting the NFL? You're just building hype for it for them. Well, I don't understand their interest in restricting the use of the term the Super Bowl. You know what? The, again, there was a uh, there was a, a, a an article running around th- this past week about how most organizations or most most uh, companies, primarily retailers who have taken that stance are doing it on their own in an abundance of caution. Oh, interesting. So it's not the NFL running around going, Hey, you can't use that term and we're going to sue you if you do. Well, I'm sure that I'm sure the NFL has contributed to the reason why companies feel they need to do that. But, um, as, as I understand it, you know, the, the example they pointed out is that, you know, Burger King has no problem talking about McDonald's in their ads. Right. Or Big Macs or anything like that. Yeah, they just put a little disclaimer, like this is the copyright of so and so. Exactly right. Or trademark of so and so. Exactly right. And so if you know if uh, if you if Burger King can say that in the context of something that is not uh, you know not a good thing for McDonald's, you know if it, it's hard to imagine the NFL uh, being harmed in any way. So anyway, it's it's an interesting thing. Uh, copyright law in the U.S. is just 
messed up. But, um, yeah, you know. Anywho. There it is. So, bit of a shorter show today, but, you know, we all have got bad food to eat. That's right. Things like that. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Anyhow, we appreciate you listening, as always, and uh, thank you very much. If you have any thoughts or opinions, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find links to the stories we talked about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec, and you can follow Mr. Kellen on Twitter at Lurg, and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again for episode 105 next week. Take care. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Hey, your mom said hi. I like the Snuggie. That's awesome. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, we've gotten a lot of comments about the Snuggie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.